Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I want to extend a super special invitation. November 8th through the 11th, right here in Boston, Massachusetts, we're hosting Inbound 2016. It is our event where we bring together thousands of marketing and sales professionals from around the globe to come to one spot, share all the latest and greatest in terms of tactics, strategies, best practices, so we can all learn from each other. Over 250 sessions, some amazing keynotes, including Alec Baldwin, Anna Kendrick. It's going to be great. I have even better news for you. As a Growth Show listener, you get a free community pass to Inbound 2016. Just go to inbound.com to register and use the code PODCAST. That's capital P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We hope to see you at Inbound. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Sometimes you just have to hack your way to growth. That's what Heaton Shaw has done. From the early days of his first startup, Crazy Egg, to his new venture in Quick Sprout, and working with tons of other companies. We're going to learn today about Heaton's hacks on growth, on life, and parenting. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Growth Show. You strike me as somebody who is very uncomfortable being in the majority. It's like you want to live on the other side of the majority. You, you see the leverage in, in the minority of any yep. kind of way of doing things. Yeah. I like what you said, and I'm going to take it to marketing. I'd say that what I've learned about marketing relates to this in a big way, which is if, you're, if you start by doing something different, you're likely to get more audience affinity and people around you. And if you picked correctly, it's going to be bigger than whatever the norm is today. Yep. So not to screw with Darmesh, but like, <laughs> you know, like inbound marketing, when it started, described a bunch of stuff that many people were doing and aggregated it into a terminology and a lexicon. I would pick on him, but I'm going to leave it alone because I've had long conversations with him about the terminology <laughs> and what's happened know, yeah. and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, like that was something that was not trendy and, and HubSpot as a company, Dermesh and Brian and the team were very early onto it and attracting and going after a set of customers, consumers, depending on how you look at it, that could accept that concept. While like a lot of like tech companies could not accept that concept back then. They're like, oh, we use AdWords. We're going to pay for traffic. Totally. That was the case in 06 when this thing was yeah, started. There was right? no leverage. There was no yeah, leverage. And so I would say that like some of the biggest, greatest things were started in a way that was on the edge. If you're correct, you'll either make it big in the case of like inbound marketing and co-opt a lot of things and do your thing, or it's just naturally going to trend. So for example, all of the companies that I'm planning on running for the foreseeable future or starting or whatever are remote. And that's a trend, right? And, it is a trend. And, and I'm an advisor to two remote companies, Automatic and Buffer, at different scales. These, these are companies that tend to be pretty transparent as well. Very transparent, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I like it. I learn a lot from it. So it's, to me, yeah, the edge is great. It's more fun. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's so, more learnings. Yeah, so let's talk about remote real quick before we go back to marketing. There's challenges with remote. What do you think the benefits are? Like, why do you want to do it? Logically speaking, you can hire 
more better people if they're remote because you don't have to move them and you're not stuck to a geographic area. Cost structure is way better. So cost structure, yeah. And I go back to autonomy. As humans, we just want to do what we want to do. I can't imagine anyone arguing with me on that. They could resist it because they're not able to do what they want to do today. Fine, I'm cool with that. Um, And so by having a remote team, I think you could build a different type of culture and a different mindset for people. For example, at Crazy Egg, we, my co-founder Neil and I have a, you could say he's a founding partner because he, he basically built all the technology for that and Kissmetrics and then came back to Crazy Egg. He owns a significant chunk of the business and he works 10 hours a week and he's an engineer. We work with a lot of dev shops and every single dev shop we work with is like, and his name's John, and they're like, we now work with our other clients in the same way we work with you folks because of the way John taught us to do a bunch of stuff because he's, again, fully autonomy's there. And, and I talk to him for 15 to 30 minutes every week once. That's all I get. That's all he gets. <laughs> and we're good, right? And there's a lot of stuff in email and sure, Slack and all sure. that, but like, that's it. And so how can he leave that lifestyle? It's not a bad thing. He's not in a cage, but like, it's a very it's a, it's a good, good lifestyle. lifestyle. Like he only has to work 10 hours a week. That's by design by him. Yeah. And when he transitioned from Kissmetrics to Crazy Egg, one of his criteria was, I don't want to keep doing what I've been doing. I've been working 70 hours a week. He almost didn't want to work with Neil and I, even though he already owned a lot of Crazy Egg, yeah. because he's like, I can go make money on my own and I don't have to spend all this time working, so to speak. And I'm like, well, what if we could give you that? It's cool. Like, it's totally we'll cool. How out, much yeah. you want to work, we'll figure it out. So I, I love the execution of being able to provide somebody with that kind of environment where they can do that, especially if they're amazing. And this gentleman's hands down amazing. I, I, think, I think that's the key point in all of this, right? When you talk about remote, when you talk about, hey, we get 30 minutes with each other a week, that only works if that person is the right fit and has the right acumen to do that job. Yeah. If you aren't good at picking people, then it crashes and burns. Actually, uh, I'll give a theory I have that's been working, but thankfully I'm not hiring too many people or (laughs) I probably drive a lot of people nuts. But my goal would be when we hire a new person in any of our companies, we ramp them up within a week. Let's say the company is a pool, like an actual pool with water, and there's a shallow end and a deep end. What I like to do is throw them in the deep end and then in that week figure out, okay, do they need floaties? (laughs) <laughs> to survive in the deep end. Are they the ones that they put on their arms? Are they a big, you know, tube? <laughs> do we need to move them to a little shallower part? Or do we just move them all the way to the shallow part? And are they going to be okay with that? Right? Or do we kick them out of the fucking pool? Sorry, excuse my language. <laughs> podcast. No, no, on mine. I've never heard anyone say I can, you know, the goal is to ramp you up in a week. Otherwise, you're gone. And I don't mean it that abrasively, but it's like, well. But there's a small that, percentage we, of people that you can know in a week that aren't the right fit. I think you can know with 100% of people if they're a right fit in a week. I just think we've built systems to have 30 days, 90 totally. days, and trial periods, and all these, all this crap on top of that. But like yeah. as a human, it's like, I'd want to know right away. <laughs> I, I don't want to deal with, ideally, most people. I don't want to deal with politics, and I don't want to deal with ambiguity. And, and we want people that want autonomy. We haven't ever used that word as we brought people in because I don't think people understand what that really means. And even as I think about like all these concepts, like at the end of the day, I'm excited about providing an environment for people and thinking about people as them ultimately wanting freedom of their time. And how do you get people to that place? I know it's tough because most of us are working really hard. My co-founder Neil and I, we, we don't count hours, but we're working like 
all the time. It's not to say that you shouldn't work or you should work. It's more about what do you want to do? And are you capable of doing that with whatever constraints you want to put on your work life? Yeah. Right? And is that whatever you're doing, is it interesting to you? Is it worth whatever yeah. that effort is? Yeah, yeah. And going back to our partner and friend, John, he wants to work 10 hours a week and he runs all of engineering at Crazy Egg in 10 hours a week. And that's the constraint he put on it. That's the constraint we were happy with. And it's working. And I've never heard of anything like that. And I'm amazed that it's working. So <laughs> Turns out humans are good at operating in constraints. Yeah, it's fascinating. We adapt and we figure it out. Right. Okay, so you advise more companies than I can keep track of. Yeah, and sure. work with more companies than I can keep track of. Most of the people who listen to this show are they're marketers, they're salespeople, but they're also entrepreneurs. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to grow their companies. Across the cross-section of folks you've worked with, what causes a business to go sideways? What, what stops growth from actually happening? Uh, the, the lack of math and the lack of a spreadsheet, even at the earliest stages of a startup. I don't want them to get all MBA on me, but like I would love to understand how they're thinking about the, how this thing is going to grow. What are the economics? I'll give an example. I was talking to a company I advised yesterday. They're raising money. They have an early consumer product. It's very good. There's some patents and the technology's dope. And they have a bunch of different markets they can go after. I was talking to one of my business partners and she was telling me when I was telling her about the company, oh, I need it for X, right? And there's like probably 10 or 20 of those Xs out there that are different demographics, different use cases. They don't have product in market today. They just have a great, great product ready to start shipping. It's been tested with certain segments and investors are like, oh, you should focus on one market. My response to that is like, they need to run experiments and figure out for the different audiences that they're going after and the use cases, what are the economics? What's the customer acquisition cost? And what's the you know, lifetime value, if appropriate, or first purchase revenue? In their case, it's, it's commerce type stuff and it's CPG. That's the logical answer, not look at that, look at all their opportunities and be like, oh, you need to focus. It's actually like, well, let's do some math and let's figure out maybe before we even try to get into those verticals, do some math and see what the reasonable outcomes are. Because they have verticals where in one shot, they sell a hundred of these units. Okay, that's cool. But that probably takes more work to sell a hundred units to probably an organization that wants to buy a hundred compared to selling one-offs to consumers. There's probably pricing differences too. So that changes the math. So I would say that even if you're a coffee shop or whatever, do some math. Like Google Docs, Google Spreadsheets, and like just type some math in, and <laughs> some you, math you'll, in. you'll start getting figure some, out the math that you need. Yeah, you know, like for example, I launched a expert pitch deck review service this week, and we have a bunch of price points. It starts at nine hundred bucks, then there's a twenty five hundred dollar option and forty five hundred dollar option. It's an experiment, right? There's no expectation, honestly. We didn't expect any sales. We got a bunch. It's cool, but we did math. We did research for sure, but we did math and said, okay, at these price points, how many do we need to sell to make any amount of money here where it's worth our time? And then we came up with the price points based on that and what we learned about this consumer and customer. If you don't do your homework, then you're not going to figure out whether what you're doing works for you. Businesses fail because they haven't done the math. Turns out math's important. Yeah. May have, may, it, yeah. may have been boring at times yeah. in school, but turns out it's very important in, yeah. in practical application. What do, the, what do great founders have in common? You have an interesting set of data in your head and that you've worked with ton of really great founders. Like, What's the overlap in traits and skills there? The most commonality, I would say, is a strong sense of self-awareness, which doesn't just translate into the founders having self-awareness or the executives, if it's a larger company, but also the whole organization. So there's this concept that I, I think about a lot, which is organizational self-awareness. 
we're on the HubSpot show, but it is my favorite example of this is when HubSpot sucked at product and they kept trying to hire David Cancel to do it. And then they ended up just buying the damn company, right? And shutting down the product. So they didn't buy it because that product was something they really, really wanted. This is all from the outside. I don't know shit. Um, <laughs> and he came in and revamped the product organization. And now the HubSpot product is up to par with many other products in the market when previously it was not. The sales organization was, the marketing parts of the business were, the, even the brand had its affinity. But it wasn't a product-driven business. And at that time, prior to that happening, it was probably okay that it wasn't a product-driven business. But at some point, that needed to change. The founders, the executives, the whole company was probably aware of this in a way that the outside world was aware probably before them. But then once that awareness converted into action, that, that was gold. They got the best person they could to go do that job for them, and it's done. Yeah, I think what I've found is that like people are actually decent at the awareness part. It's hard. They have difficulties in the taking action part. Once you like, you, oh man, this is the problem, but it's going to be okay. Having the urgency and really saying like, man, this is a problem. We have to go fix it right now and we need to You're pay, admitting you pay suck. whatever cost, right? Whatever, You're admitting whatever, that's you dollar. suck. Yeah. You have to admit you suck. Nobody wants to admit that they suck at something. Yeah, but I think as humans, we all have to realize there are things we're good at and things we're bad at. Yeah, sure. And it's like, if, it turns out if the things that you're bad at are actually really important to doing what you're trying to do, then you need to get somebody that's good at them to do it. And, and you just demonstrated my whole point of organizational self-awareness. Someone who didn't understand that or wouldn't, wouldn't be in the role you're in at this company wouldn't, couldn't say what you said. That's, right. that's self-awareness, right? That's totally. like saying, like, when I say, hey, you suck, you don't go, oh, shit, I don't suck. Here's why. Instead, you're like, oh, I suck. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, where do I suck? Tell me more because, like, <laughs> hey, if it's important, we should get better at totally. it. But this company, HubSpot as a whole, I've always felt like with most of the people I talk to, you could feel that. Even if they don't ask, like, oh, what's the critical feedback or anything like that, it's like, I, I, I'm a critical person. I'll say critical things. I don't really care too much. I like being direct. And companies either take that really well or take it really badly. And a lot of it has to do with how I say it too. Don't get me wrong. I like finding that purple bruise you have and just poking at it, <laughs> right? Until, you're, until you fix it or get a Band-Aid yeah. or like know that it's there. Because oftentimes companies don't even know it's there. Fixing those things is where you get all the leverage, right? Absolutely. Like that's where, that's yeah. where you could really be great at things. It's yeah. like, it goes back to, man, you're working hard. You're doing lots of things. Like let's make it worth it and let's focus on, uh, on the right aspects of it. So we talked a lot about founders. We talked about we talked about marketing. I think before before I let you go, what I would love to hear for the average person out there listening who is just trying to get better at whatever they're doing, whether it's running a company, doing marketing, sales, whatever that be, what's your advice on just making themselves better as a human? So we had a value at Kissmetrics. We still do. Uh, it's called Be Better Than Yesterday. If you think about what you're most focused on. And you just think every day, am I getting better at that? And if not, what can I do tomorrow to get better at that? It's that simple. It's probably some of the hardest stuff to do because you might be focused on a lot of things or you might not understand that this is the thing you need to get better at. So I would say that there's a couple things and I'll give a, a few of them. One, if there's anybody that you feel like can be honest with you about whatever you're doing, take a moment and ask them for that feedback on whatever you're doing, even if you think they won't understand it because you'd be surprised at how how much your parents might understand about what you're doing, give you a perspective. And they're probably the people that, if you just ask them to be critical, they'll be super critical. 
I don't care who your parents are, that's usually the case because they want to help you, like fundamentally in most cases. That's one thing you can do. If not, find a best friend that'll give you that critical feedback. And I'll say one other thing just to give two, not more. What I do and what I did for a long time and still do is after an experience with either somebody else or something I'm doing, I'll actually mentally review it to try to understand where I went right, where I went wrong, and how I can get better at that kind of interaction. I personally am, I would say, living proof of that in the fact that I've met with thousands of founders personally, and the way I got better at giving advice and helping them out is by thinking a lot about every interaction, whether I was effective or not, and if I could have been more effective. And uh, it's a really simple practice. It's like, dude, if you meet with someone, get out of your own head and think about what you provided them what you did there and how you could have done a better job for them, not yourself. That can be really helpful in just getting better. Final bonus question. Sure. You're a parent of two. Yeah. I have an 11 month old. Oh, I, 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 want, I want your best parenting advice hack. Yeah. Like what's the secret to raising a well-functioning human? I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> I feel like my father really raised me really well. So I have an example in front of me, although all the advice he gives me about my kids, I think is wrong. <laughs> So I don't really know what to say, but I'm super impressed at what he did for me. Uh, so, you know, not trying to take anything away from him, but maybe he's just old now. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Uh, Sorry, uh, Dad. Yeah, yeah. You got to give him a couple digs. Uh, hmm. I think you have to define what you believe a good human is, and, and that's different in everyone's heads, right, first of all. And a lot of that has to do with your own perspective on it, your significant other's perspective on it. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a six-and-a-half-year-old. And the best advice I can give, which I would give for anybody in any situation is like, treat them like individuals and help them be themselves. And oftentimes that's all I'm doing all day, not just with kids, it's just with anybody, right? And, and with your own kids, you get to observe them and understand who they are before they do. And if you can just shed light to them on that, that can be hugely valuable. And if you wanna go really far on this, like as soon as possible, try to understand their personality in whatever ways you can. Because that'll help you understand like what gives them energy, what doesn't, what makes them happy, what doesn't, and then you can tune to that. So that's good parenting yeah. summarized, I, I, totally I think. Like my son yeah. loves other yeah. kids and other people. Yeah. And so like if I'm going to be a good parent, like that. I'm going to yeah. go and like take yeah. him to see other kids and other people cool. because yeah. like he likes that, right? Right. And that's, that's it's things, yeah. simple and, things and, like and that. My, my son, he'll only commit to things after he has an experience with them and decides that it's good for him. So he needs more experiences, <laughs> but we need to accept when he says, I don't want to do this anymore. With my daughter, she'll just decide and she's doing it and you can't stop her. And that's way different than my son, but it's like these are individuals yeah. and we forget that. And we always want to compare and contrast to other kids and ourselves and it's like these are individuals. They have their own personality. It might be your genetics. You might see things in them that are you, but you're probably lying to yourself. Good advice. Thanks, Eaton. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 